Welcome back to The Current Thing with me, Nick Dixon, and we have yet another excellent guest today. He is the Associate Professor of Philosophy of Religion at the University of Cambridge, if you've heard of them. I hear they're pretty good. He's the chair of the Edmund Burke Foundation. It is Dr. James Orr. Thanks so much for doing the show, James. Good to be with you, Nick. Yeah, you just recently did a series with um, Jordan Peterson and Dennis Prager, so this is a slight step up for you, but I'm, I'm sure you can handle it. <laughs> and we'll get into that later, maybe. There's, there's so many things we could talk about. I thought maybe we'd start with NatCon, though, the National Conservatism Conference. I don't know your exact title, but you seem very involved in organizing it. I just wondered what your goals were for the conference and the larger movement and how you felt it went, your conclusion from the conference. Mm. Sure. Yes, I'm chair of the Edmund Burke Foundation UK, as you kindly mentioned. And in that capacity, I chaired the organizing committee for NatCon UK, um, the inaugural conference of national conservatism uh, here in London and back in May. And um, it was the first expression uh, of national conservatism in the UK. There There have been a number of successful conferences in Uh, Europe, and it's been running in the States, I think, for, gosh, four years now, and uh, has had an enormous impact in the in both in Europe and 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 certainly in the United States. Um, But what we wanted to do was uh, to develop a a homegrown expression of it uh, here in the UK. And I was conscious that there's not really in there isn't really hadn't really been within the kind of calendar of political events, the, the, the political calendar, anything like it, really. Of course, there's the party conference, the Tory party conference. And if you want to arrange um, gatherings, then you do it on the fringe. I mean, you are a, a fringe meeting and um, you're really there. You're subordinated, as it were, to the Tory party machine. But there was not any space within the there, there wasn't anything that was like a kind of conference that, or convention that would bring uh, not just Tories together, but people who would see themselves as having a conservative outlook on the world and um, coming together, mixing together journalists and academics and cabinet ministers and also ordinary punters who were just getting fed up and feeling politically homeless and feeling that they were conservative, but the Tory party wasn't giving any any expression to to their values and um so that was the thinking behind it and um we put it together very very quickly i mean i think we it was probably about three months altogether of intense planning and um we were thrilled with how it went i mean i had no idea quite what an impact it would have and had no idea that, that, that it would provoke such an intense uh, backlash not just from the left but from the sort of squishy liberal wings of the Conservative Party and the media establishment. There was a very intense reaction, um, criticism from all sides, in fact. We had uh, criticism from the sort of libertarian crowd uh, that felt that the NatCon movement was insufficiently invested in uh, free trade and, and the free markets. Uh, and that criticism has some force, of, of certainly of the, the American strand, um, but, uh, uh, but, but I mean, I think it was very, what, what we did in fact was to showcase and, and have with us guests who were like Lord Frost, who I think has been on your uh, podcast before, uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, uh, Dan Hannan, figures who are probably more at the Whiggish end of the 
Tory spectrum. Um, so I didn't think that those weren't really um, fair criticisms, but they were honest. Um, they, they were good faith criticisms. Um, and then I think, yes, from the um, uh, from from the other side, I mean, you know, aggressive reactions from the left. Uh, this is um, but but not re- those were not really objections worth worth engaging with it was as far as i could make out name calling um the standard name calling that we get you get from from progressive quarters um we are nothing but um we were nothing but fascists nothing but nazis etc etc um and so those those were not really criticisms that we that we needed to engage um uh, everyone's a nazi these days and uh, if everyone's a nazi no one's a nazi yeah absolutely and no it was a great event i really like the fact that the we, you said grace as well before the opening dinner. I thought that was quite bold in, in this day and age. So, yeah, and so many interesting speakers. The strangest attack was from Matt Hancock, who, who condemned Danny Kruger's speech and, and called it a fringe view, a belief in the family he was referring to, a belief in the, in the normal, well, normative family, was I think this phrase Kruger used. I thought that was completely bizarre. I mean, you know, there, as you say, there were Conservative MPs there, Rees Mogg, Suella Bravman, I think, and, and Lord Frost and so on, and, of course, Danny Kruger, who I've just mentioned. But does this, does this make you think we have some hope in the Conservative Party because they're there, but then the reaction of Hancock, does that make you think actually there is no hope for the Conservative Party? What's your take? Well, it was a very useful reaction. I can't quite remember now what he said, but, um, well, the country's more than familiar with Man- Matt Hancock's views on, on the importance of family and uh, loyalty, <laughs> fidelity and uh, loyalty to the family. So, I mean, I think that really did blow up in his face. Um, uh, but it would usefully clarified some, you know, big, big divisions within British conservatism. Um, and, you know, the, the, the idea that one should uh, deny that um, the family is a sort of basic unit, a basic starting point for um, conservative philosophy from really from Burke onwards um, is was quite extraordinary. What it did was it, it very usefully exposed fissures within the conservative movement, and it, it was a sorting mechanism. Really, um, the reaction was a kind of political Rorschach test, and it showed you know if you if you if you care about the family, you recognise the importance of the family as that fundamental pre-political institution, um, that institution that. Um, um, tyrants and totalitarians always and everywhere want to erode and break down because it is, as it were, it represents, you know, that that part of society, the mo- that most basic unit of society that is, um, uh, uh, that, that, that will, as it were, defy executive overreach. Um, that I thought was very useful. Um, so I wasn't troubled by that at all. In fact, I, I was, you know, I, I welcomed it because, the reaction that it uh, uh, elicited, that, that kind of reaction showed just what a challenge conservatives have got when it comes to winning the argument. The fact that there was so much, as it were, uh, friendly fire um, from the likes of Hancock uh, showed that, that, that sort of exposed this sort of schizophrenic character of the contemporary conservative party. Yeah. Uh, do you think... The, do you do you wonder why the conservatives have failed to fight the culture war in so many arenas, the civil service, the NHS, so many institutions like that, and, and they always fall back on phrases like stoking divisive culture wars, as if it's this terrible thing, when really they failed to even defend against this sort of cultural revolution that's happened. 
Yes, I mean, a culture war isn't a culture war if only one side turns up. Um, and, uh, you know, I think typically when that phrase is invoked, um, what's meant by it is that um, conservatives are defending positions that until five minutes ago were eminently reasonable and basically shared by almost all people of good faith. Uh, um, but um, because there's resistance to the, that the first sign of resistance to some kind of radical expression of a progressive ideology, um, we're, uh, we're accused of, of provoking culture wars. We're, we're not allowing the, the revolution to continue smoothly. Um, and, and so it's just a sort of, you know, cheap rhetorical trick, really, and, 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 and should be ignored. In fact, it, it, it should be welcomed. It's a sign that we are prodding the belly of the beast and, and getting exactly the kind of um, uh, reaction that, that we, we need to have um, and, and that we're sort of corroding and exploding the group think that dominates SW1 and that's so out, out of sync, as almost all polling shows, with the wider mood of the electorate. Yeah. All right. Great answer. And what about um, this essay you just wrote, just moving on from NatCon, this, you just made an essay called What is Conservatism? It's on uh, Constantine Kiss in the Substack. I thought I'd ask you a few questions about that. And I, my, my overall take from it was that you were essentially saying conservatism takes the best of life from tradition, but it's not, it's not that it's just obsessed with tradition because it, it just wants to look for the basic good things in life, family, friendship, knowledge, beauty, meaning, play, you mentioned. And it's not stuck in any particular time or place, but rather it just looks at whatever is conducive to human flourishing. And it looks at tradition only because it's likely to be a store of good ideas built up over time. Am I sort of broadly right? Yeah, that, that's, that's roughly, roughly it, exactly. Um, I, I could have written a great deal more than, than in fact I did, but we had to sort of keep to space constraints um, but yeah, I, I mean, I, you know, when asked to define what conservatism is, the conservative is always in a slightly difficult position because one of the virtues of conservatism is precisely that it doesn't prescribe a clear schematic definition that can be applied to all societies at all times and in all places. It is, as the academics say, a situationist political philosophy. It is uh, uh, responsive to the needs of the time. Um, and so I think I used the example of um, gun ownership and gun rights. Now, I mean, I think, broadly speaking, the coherent conservative position, if you're in the United States, is to support the Second Amendment, um, because the people of the United States are where they are. Uh, um, if you were to simply repeal the Second Amendment, I think that would have enormous constitutional, frankly, revolutionary implications in that context. And I understand and sympathize with the argument that um, disowning, uh, uh, um, disarming all legal gun owners uh, would put um, many uh, innocent civilians in the States at, um, at great risk from those who are willing to break the law uh, in holding guns illegally, uh, who are very unlikely to surrender them. Now, in the UK, by contrast, I think the conservative position is to maintain the status quo. Uh, uh, we saw a conservative government got rid of guns shortly after, or handguns after the Dunblane tragedy in 1996. Uh, and that is, that's where we're at. The conservative position is to um, maintain that status quo. Now that can look contradictory. It can look 
like a, a sort of incoherent political philosophy, but it's not. Uh, it's responsive to um, the, the, the great line of Solon of Athens, the great Athenian lawmaker, when asked uh, what a perfect society is, what it looks like, replied, for whom and at what time? Um, and so uh, th- that sort of the definitional difficulty involved in, in pinning down what conservatism is, 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 is in fact a virtue. Conservatism is also, and I'm not sure this is a point I made it, made uh, in in that piece, but it's also dispositional. That is to say, it, it's allergic to ideology. It's allergic to grand, uh, abstract recipes for social perfection and and a kind of um, a, and a sort of social paradise. Um, I think sometimes this is a little bit overplayed. I mean, Roger Scruton and others were, were keen on saying that you know conservatism is really a habit of thinking. It's a it's a way of thinking at the uh, way of thinking about the world. It's it's an approach. It's a disposition rather than a um, rather than an ideology. Now, I think there's a bit more to it than that. I think the conservatism is conservative is non negotiably committed to a certain uh, uh, to to certain tenets, certain axioms. Uh, to do with the importance of order, the importance of the transcendent, whether that's God or whether it's some um, uh, uh, recognition of a natural law, that is to say an objective moral universe that transcends the here today, gone gone tomorrow, um, moral stipulations of any given society or parliament. Um, I think the Conservative will be uh, also keen on linking freedom to uh, property. I think that's an important idea that conservatives conservatives believe that freedom is not really freedom if you can't express it through through property, through having your own, as it were, portion of the world that you can call call your own. And uh, and, there are one or two others. I mean, I think there's a a recognition that, um, that change it may not always be uh, a good idea. Um, particularly hasty change, revolution rather than evolution, is, uh, is, is normally a bad idea. That um, tearing things down that have built up over time very organically is, is a lot easier to do than building them uh, back up again. And this is the um, sometimes uh, expressed in the form of Chesterton's famous parable of the fence. If you're walking in the hills and you're in a you're in a field. You see a fence. Um, the conservative intuition is just we, even if it's not quite clear why the fence is up, and it seems irrational even to keep the fence up. Um, the the kind of defeasible presumption should be you keep that fence up there. Somebody put it up for some reason, and we should, as it were, um, defer to to um, to the judgment of of that person. And and that that comes with a certain idea about rationality. Um, We'd like to think of reason these days as something that is quite sort of procedural, uh, that can make sense to, to, to any given individual. Um, the conservative sees reason as being something that's a lot more subtle than that. Reason can be tacit, for example. We can be rational in our beliefs about something, even if we can't, in fact, provide evidence for it, even if we can't provide a slam dunk argument for it, that sometimes common sense is a very good guide. And also we think that sometimes, particularly in um, 
in, in modern society, when you're dealing with um, inconceivably complex interlocking systems, that it's very unlikely that uh, any one person at any one time is going to understand how absolutely everything works. Reason, in other words, is, is dispersed and it's emergent. So this is what Hayek calls in the economic context, spontaneous order. Order emerges not from some central planner in Whitehall telling us how to run everything or from some economist in the Treasury guessing what the price of milk has to be from day to day, but through, as it were, the spontaneous order that emerges from the free exchange between vast numbers of people. In the case of the price mechanism, that the markets will do that. In the case of the law, for example, um, the common law does that very well within the... Um, Within the Anglosphere, uh, typically there's been, at least until recently, a preference for case-by-case -case judgments that emerge from concrete situations, concrete human scenarios, and not from some parliament in the middle prescribing uh, what laws must be from, um, uh, for, for, for all time. And that's a very sort of subtle and more fine-grained way of establishing and discerning the principles of natural justice um, than the sort of top-down, dirigiste, statue-first approach that you might say you might see in a place like France. Yes, it's a sort of inductive, empirical approach. And it's good to know that point about gun ownership as well, because I've, I've always thought you should have the Second Amendment in the US, but I wouldn't necessarily introduce guns to London now with our stabbing problem and our dense population. I, I always thought that was just me being whimsical, but it's good to know actually that's got some conservative reasoning behind it. Um, and you also, because you spoke, in fact, about the suppleness of conservatism, its um, responsiveness to situations within a given community. And I suppose people don't really think of conservatism as supple, except perhaps Jacob Rees-Mogg reclining on the benches of the House of Commons. But it's, it's not a way that people really think of it. So that was very interesting. But you did also talk about the, ne the, ne the necessity for order as well within it. I was wondering as well about your critique of liberalism, because we've had someone like Andrew Doyle on the show, a very brilliant person, but he's very committed to liberalism and he seems to see liberalism as a kind of a sort of a bulwark a sort of something that stands firm is, is always in favor of free speech despite the constant attacks on it which almost sort of sounds more like conservatism to me but but whereas you are sort of not particularly thrilled with liberalism you say at the end the conservative outlook orients a society towards everything that it must protect and preserve if it is to enjoy the ordered freedom and relational flourishing that liberalism rightly craves but can never achieve. And I wondered there why liberalism can't achieve that, because earlier in the piece it seemed like the threats to order you mentioned were libertarianism and anarchism, because just they lack a sense of order, and the egalitarians, because they don't trust the sort of righteous hierarchies, the sort of honourable hierarchies or competent hierarchies that Peterson speaks about. But surely that's the leftists there that are the, are the problem rather than the liberals. So why is it that liberals can never achieve this relational flourishing and ordered freedom you talk about? Well, it's a great question, Nick, and you're going right to the heart of a fascinating debate that's happening uh, within this strange coalition that has emerged uh, in the wake of the progressive cultural revolution that we've seen in the last decade or so in, in, in the UK and elsewhere. Um, and so I don't think I would differ for one moment from Andrew when it comes to diagnosing the problem and, as it, and it, as it were, thinking through what, what the immediate solutions to it are. Where we probably would differ and where I differ from my liberal friends would be on whether or not what we're seeing um, in this cultural revolution is a feature of liberalism or a bug. 
my claim is that it's a feature of liberalism, that this is the way that liberalism was always going to end up. Whereas I think Andrew and others would say, no, this is a strange aberration. Um, uh, you know, please, please, can we go back to, I don't know, 2013 when things weren't quite as bad and, and, and just keep, keep, keep that going. My view is that liberalism has within it a kind of emancipatory momentum. That is to say that the liberal is always looking to free X from Y. That is what the liberal does. And so when liberalism achieves to a stunning degree and, and, and at an extraordinary speed, it's sunlit uplands. It's never, it's always restless. It's always wondering, well, what about the 0.6% of the population who might prefer the moonlit uplands? What about them? We must emancipate them. We must keep liberating. And so it's very difficult to convince the liberal who finds himself on his sunlit uplands to become a conservative and to say, well, look, just lock in your gains and conserve things as they are. Because, as it were, the, the revolution is never over. The, the project of liberating every individual from the unchosen obligations and bonds that every human being is born into, I mean, literally, we're literally tied by a biological cord to the human being who brings us into the world. Um, but those are completely unacceptable and uh, to, to the liberal mindset. Um, now, conservatives have the reverse problem. I mean, the conservative... It is faced with the problem, well, what happens, what do you do when you need to stop conserving and you need to change? You need, you, you, you need to accept the, the, the need for change. So it's a sort of reverse, re, re, reverse problem. But, but I think that, um, yes, I think that what, what we're seeing now is, as it were, something that, that springs out of um, the liberal mindset. It's, it's, it's maybe a kind of metastasis within liberalism, but but it's not something that you see in countries that are much less liberal. Yeah, so I suppose one question there would be, where do you stop and lock in these gains? Because one place I differed from Andrew Doyle was that he thought political correctness was a good thing. I thought it was already a bad thing, whereas he sees wokeness as perhaps political correctness going too far, as I say political correctness was always a bad idea. So where would I mean, they might cite something like the civil rights movement or something like that. So where do you sort of lock in these gains? At what point do you do it? That might be the question. Yes, I mean, uh, that, well, that would really be a question for them. I mean, the Conservative doesn't have sunlit uplands. There is no perfect utopia that we're constantly rushing to the barricades to achieve. Uh, that partly, I think, springs from a big philosophical difference about human beings and what human beings are. And I think this is a bit crude, but but plausible. Um, that that there's a distinction for the, for the liberal human beings are in effect, um, uh, uh, but basically perfect, basically morally well disposed, and 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 that where they act badly, um, uh, those that that the the explanation for that comes from the shackles that um, society has unjustly um, uh, 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 imposed upon them. Whereas I think the conservative approach is to say is a bit more clear-eyed and uh, and insists that human beings are fallen and fallible and fragile and uh, you might want to add another f word in there um and that human nature actually doesn't change very much uh, human beings are not perfectible um they are uh, it, it is possible and indeed i think advisable for governments to think about how we could 
help citizens become more virtuous, but governments should not be prescribing to citizens how they uh, ought to behave. And um, and governments should also recognize that um, there is, as it were, that the line between good and evil, as Solzhenitsyn says, it's often quoted, but it's often quoted because it's true, doesn't run between uh, nation states, but right down through the middle of, of the human heart. And so the conservative allergy to the sunlit uplands um, uh, and the, the allergy to this idea that, 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 human, that, that, that history is always moving in one direction, that the moral arc of, of, of uh, history is moving in one um, positive direction uh, all the time, um, is, 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 a, um, uh, is a, a way of thinking about human change and history that is simply implausible and, and doesn't, doesn't uh, properly reflect uh, uh, what human beings are. Yeah. Yeah, and people have had all sorts of theories around that, like Steve Bannon or someone like that is very interested in the the fourth turning, is it called? This sort of, yeah, cyclical idea. We have cycles of history. There are sort of up time, times and down times and all this kind of thing, rather than this steady march towards progress, which, yeah, I'm, I'm starting to think it, it, it isn't like that. That's why we have things like traditionalism. But, um, all right, very interesting. I, I thought about moving on to Christianity or, or, or religion, as well, because you, you talked about this at NatCom, where you say that no government can ignore what has molded the moral imagination of its people for more than a millennia. And you talk about religion as a source of moral authority that is basically pre-political. And you also said that it, it places all political power beyond human control. And this interesting line, the sacred, the, sorry, the sacred is what keeps the secular secular, which I thought was interesting. That was in reference to King Charles's inauguration specifically. But it made me think, you know, how far should the placing of Christianity at the centre of our culture go and, and what form should it take? Well, it's, it's a very good question. And, and again, I mean, my take there would be, look, Christianity has been the dominant um, moral imaginary of this country for many, many hundreds of years. And uh, whether you think Christianity is true or not, there are good conservative reasons why one would be very nervous about unraveling that moral imaginary. Um, uh, there's that line of, uh, of Ross Doubter that's often quoted, you may not like the religious right, but just wait till you see the post-religious right. I mean, I think you could probably apply that to the left too. You may not like the Christian socialists, but just wait till you see the post-Christian socialists, well, we, we actually do know how that worked out uh, in, in the, the shift from Christian socialism to Fabian socialism and, of course, to, to um, Bolshevism in, in, in the USSR. So, again, I, I, you know, that there's, a, there's a sense that, look, we've got a system that has worked as a kind of purely pragmatic argument for Christianity uh, being occupying the kind of the, the, the heart of um, the, the, the nation's way of thinking about the world in, in normative terms. And, um, and the thought is, we, you know, we mess with that at our peril. Now, the question then of how we do we do we prescribe um, Christianity in, in some way? Well, no, I think that that's that's a bad idea. But I don't think that's a problem that we've really suffered from a great deal. Um, the great irony is that um, you've got the First Amendment in the United States, this uh, rigid separation between church and state, 
but an incredibly fevered um, relationship between religious citizens and non-religious citizens. By contrast, here in the UK, we have an established church, but religion has never been the kind of politically divisive issue that it's been on the other side of the Atlantic. There are plenty of um, plenty of Christian socialists and plenty of um, Christians uh, on the right. I'd say disproportionately many uh, Christians in 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 high office, um, and and so uh, the 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 sort of establishment framework ha- has been uh, incredibly successful, at least in, until until recently. And I think there's a lot to be said for preserving cultural Christianity, um, uh, preserving the husk of Christianity, even if the kernel has has vanished. Uh, again, I think a culturally Christian nation is, all other things being equal, um, a, a flourishing nation, a, nat- a nation in which people can flourish, whether you are uh, a Christian or whether you're not. In fact, my, I take the view that a, that, a, that a country committed to the seriousness of, of um, the importance of Christianity will usually be a lot more relaxed about including and engaging with people from different religions than in a country that aggressively prescribes a kind of um, programmatic procedural secularism, as is the case in France. Uh, Laïcité, so-called the sort of secular project of the French Republic or French Republics, I don't think has... um, has has which in, in in a way distills the great liberal project of creating a completely neutral uh, public square that is um, that that excludes all expressions of uh, of religious commitment. That in fact has not worked out very well indeed. Uh, uh, very, it, it's been it's been a real problem. Um, so it's not something we should be uh, ashamed of. It's not something uh, we we shouldn't be rejoicing at the demise of Christianity. Um, and we should be, I think, deeply discomforted when we see our national church effectively turning into the Labour Party at prayer, uh, which is quite clearly what we've been seeing in, in recent years. There isn't, to my mind, any real sort of modelling of political disagreement within the Church of England on issues about which reasonable Christians can and do disagree. Yeah. And do you think the Equality Act 2010 was a problem here because you say, as you've pretty much said there, a society that honours its majority religion is much more likely on the whole to give honour to minority religions. But was the problem giving equal billing to all religions? Peter Hitchens has talked about this a lot. I mean, once you get the 2010 Equality Act, you can have Scientology on the same level as Christianity, and that's kind of where we are now. So was that a big mistake? The passing of the Equality Act, the consequences of the Equality Act 2010, which was really a, a revised version of the 2006, its 2006 predecessor, was to bring about, I think, nothing less than a new constitutional settlement within the United Kingdom. And uh, I think, I'm not sure if this was its um, intended purpose, but it's had the result of, as it were, um, reducing and atomizing all uh, free subjects to members of protected classes. Um, And the problem, as with all rights-based regimes, is that it's impossible to rank rights. It's impossible um, for there to be any uh, sense of um, uh, what, what rights should matter more than others. It's a classic example of an abstract scheme that is imposed upon an incredibly complex 
society that has within it centuries and centuries of very particular norms and conventions and protocols and laws and self and and and, and a whole web of self understanding that is at a single stroke um, annihilated through top down legislation that is in the case of the Human Rights Act, uh, enforced by a foreign court. Yeah. All right. Very interesting that it, you think it's that it's that significant. Lots of people do. Um, what about this issue of cultural Christians? Then you just mentioned cultural Christianity. It's something I think about a lot. Is it is it useful to be a cultural Christian, or is it sort of is it not going far enough? Is it? I mean, it's better than nothing. But is it? Can you really have? cultural Christianity, can that really sustain itself without the actual spiritual belief? My view is no, no, that it, it, no it can't in the long term. But um, look, it's be- my view is that it's better to be a Christian than a cultural Christian, but it's better to be a cultural Christian than, a, than, than nothing at all. Um, and, uh, it, it, you know, I, I welcome friends who see themselves as flying buttresses on the church, supportive of it, but only from without. Um, but a, a building is a building is not going to stay up if it's just surrounded by flying buttresses. It needs strong pillars uh, on, on the inside. So no, I mean I, you know, I, I don't think cultural Christianity should be something that's just sort of dismissed or or, or, or loathed. We we swim in um, in Christian waters whether we like it or not, and many authors have shown that very convincingly uh, over the years. So we can't really get it out of our system. And in fact, when we are, the, the, the moral indignation that accompanies many of the attacks on um, Christianity and, and Christian ethics are themselves uh, uh, the expressions of, of, of a kind of Christian sentiment, a, a Christian valorizing of, of, of the victim and, uh, a, a, and a, a suspicion of authoritarianism. Yeah, that's very interesting. And it, it, Louise Perry wrote an article recently suggesting that feminism was actually another offshoot of Christianity, which slightly worried me because uh, I'm not a fan of feminism, but I could see her argument. It was a similar argument to, to the one you made just then. That's interesting. What about... Oh, go on. Yeah, it's a fabulous essay, and I would encourage your listeners to go and dig it up. It was for the current edition, I think the October issue of First Things magazine, uh, and she, in it, she argues very powerfully that the West is repaganizing. Um, I mean, I think you can. Her point, as as I understood it, was not so much that Christianity is uh, um, that feminism is, is a kind of Christian uh, kind of project, but that feminism as a movement, the elevation of the dignity of uh, women, uh, would be unintelligible within a pagan world uh, in which uh, women were accorded um, uh, nothing in the way of, of significant dignity and, uh, and rights, uh, and in which violence and the harassment of, of, of women went uh, unnoticed and, and, and unremarked. Um, so I think that's what she meant, that the sort of the, the kind of posture that, that uh, characterizes the, uh, the early phase of feminism, certainly. Uh, is one that would be um, unintelligible uh, in a world that that um, uh, that Christianity hadn't touched. Yeah. What about your own view on on the the Bible? You did this excellent series with 
Jordan Peterson, as I said, Dennis Prager, other big hitters. And of course, you held your own amongst them. I mean, you, why wouldn't you? You're an expert on this. But I was watching it quite patriotically. Every time you made a good point, I was like, yes, get in, James, because I can reduce anything to basically a football match. But it was, it was a great series. I haven't watched all of it yet. We're doing our own incredibly humble version of it on this podcast with the, the Reverend Dr. Jamie Franklin. I mean, he knows his stuff, but I'm just a sort of layman asking questions like, why was Noah so old and things like that? But did you learn anything new about the, the Bible from doing this Exodus series? Did anything surprise you from doing this series with, with Jordan Peterson and others? The, the Bible is a perennially surprising text. I mean, I've been reading it, you know, on and off for uh, 20 years pretty intensely. And I am always, you know, I, I can read a passage that I've read uh, many, many times before and I will learn something new. It, it, in that sense, it is unlike any text I've ever come across. And I speak as somebody who was an atheist well into my 20s and who spent an awful lot of time as a teenager and, a, and at university reading the, the classics and the, the great Greek and Latin texts and the great canon. Uh, and nothing, nothing in the classical canon uh, uh, is is like the Bible in, in in that way. And I think that emerged as I remember. I haven't actually watched the the uh, Exodus documentaries you refer to yet, but I remember the conversations very well. Uh, what was interesting about it is that although I mean I think there were two, two there, there, we are probably three or four of us around the table who were who, who go to church. Um, there were a two or three, uh, there was, a, I think there was a secular Jew, and then there was, uh, there was Ben Shapiro, it was Dennis Prager, as you say, so occupying different points on the spectrum of, of um, Judaism. What, what that, the effect of that was to encourage us to really approach the text, Exodus, in, 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 in a surprisingly non-confessional way. Um, occasionally we would remark on, you know, we'd say, well, this is how the you know, this is how how Christianity took up Exodus later on, and and we would have some fantastic contributions about the um, how to understand Exodus in its proper Jewish context. But on the whole, we were approaching it as a text that um, was almost limitless in the um, guidance and insight that it could uh, uh, provide us people with who were simply looking for a, the right way to to go about their lives the right way to understand hierarchy and order the right way to understand what a flourishing society might look like and in a funny way you know in a, the sort of the god stuff the religion was was always in the air but but it was sort of bracketed it was rarely, rarely appealed to um i mean in the case of jordan himself i mean i don't quite know whether he would say oh, I believe in God in the traditional sense uh, and yet he is completely gripped by it and as as are so many of his followers um, and and so that, that's what I think I've, I found most surprising and um, w- when Jordan first suggested I thought it was a crazy idea I thought nobody's going to want to watch this you know eight white blokes sitting around <laughs> talking about a uh, two and a half thousand year old text but I, I gather it's it's had a, a, an enormous um uh, an awful lot of people have watched it, and I think well over half the Daily Wire uh, subscriber base is, has has now watched it. I mean, that many, many hundreds of thousands. Uh, I think it's now available to watch on YouTube, and I, I haven't looked at the uh, uh, the viewership. But I, 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 you know, we're getting as with Jordan's series on Genesis, whenever you know that he did four or five years ago, that catapulted him to to fame. There is an enormous appetite out there for what the Bible has to say about. 
how to live one's life, how to think about the place of human beings in in this messy world, how to think about relationships, um, how to think about meaning. Um, and uh, it was a, it was a great privilege to take part in it. And I think there's going to be another series. I think we're going to move on to um, uh, other books um, next year. I think we've, we're going to do do some do some recording uh next uh early next year so that that, sh- that should be out out of thought in the second half of of 2024 yeah it has massive views on the youtube hundreds and hundreds of thousands some of them maybe even uh, in the millions it's yeah and even on this podcast in a very humble scale people have given incredible feedback for our genesis episode so obviously there is an appetite for this and one thing i was going to ask you you almost said it there but how is what was your take on of Peterson's understanding of the Bible, and how does it contrast with yours? Because we've talked about it on here, where Peterson seems to see the Bible as a sort of synthesis of deep psychological truths accruing over time. But we also pointed out you can go the other way, and you can say actually Jesus just was a person embodying those truths, and it depends which way you come at it. They're both significant, but one of them is much more significant. But he yeah he doesn't necessarily seem to take it literally more of a kind of as i say accumulation of of deep psychological truths and symbols what what do you make of that yeah that's probably fair i mean i i think um jordan might fit into what's sometimes called the perennialist tradition that is roughly the view that there is a, an eternal set of truths that there is an answer to the question of um to the question of, of, of meaning and, and human meaning, but those truths are refracted in different ways in different religious traditions. And it just so happens that the Bible represents a particular, uh, uh, um, a particularly powerful vehicle and a particularly powerful concrete expression of those, of those eternal truths. Um, in other words, there's no doctrine of revelation uh, in Jordan's thought, I think it would be fair to say there's no idea, there's no sense that um, the Hebrew scriptures are the authentic disclosure of God's um, communication, God's will for human beings, um, or, uh, or in, in the sense that, that Christians have with the New Testament as well, or indeed in the sense that is, uh, uh, Muslims understand the Quran. There's no sort of um, sense that this is backed not just by um, common sense and sort of um, and, and coherent psychology, um, but that it's divinely authorized. Um, and I think you know Jews and Christians and, and Muslims would point to their sacred texts and say, you know, the reason that that, that they have this clarity, the reason that they are um, almost seemingly limitless and endless in the wisdom that they can. Um, yield up um, many, many centuries after they were first written is precisely because what sets them apart is that they are disclosures of the divine. Yeah, and I suppose perhaps you, so therefore you would probably take that view more. And and what is it, uh, sort of follow-up question on that, what was it that changed your mind when you were an atheist until your 20s? Was there one particular thing? Um, well, that would be a very long story, but I, I would say that... Um, looking into the new testament and treating them treating the those the 27 documents that make up the new testament as historical documents uh, describing historical events and uh, or purporting to describe historical events and 
and assessing them as I would as I would assess, say, the writings of Tacitus or Suetonius or Thucydides or Herodotus, that is to say, any of the pagan classical historians, and applying basically the same techniques, convinced me that the historicity of the events that the New Testament describes is um, overwhelmingly plausible and certainly and and com- comparatively speaking exceptionally powerful i mean in the case of uh, for example um jesus's resurrection i mean i looked at the looked at the early documents looked at um, 1 corinthians 15 for example that yeah, there's a very plausible case to be made that 1 corinthians 15 describes the uh, the resurrection belief of the early christians can be dated remarkably early. I mean, that is to say, within a decade, quite plausibly, of the events that that that, that uh, are alleged to have happened. Now, that kind of um, that sort of narrow gap is almost unheard of in um, in classical historiography. So that that got me going, and and I of course I had the great good fortune of having done um, ancient Greek from an early age and did it at university, and so I was able to. Um, basically make my way through the New Testament um, on my own in, 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 in the original. And that, that was also, uh, that, that was very important. I, it became much harder to dismiss the historical claims of Christianity um, when, when there was so much evidence in support of them. And I just wondered quickly if you had any take on this sort of red pill versus tradcon thing that is kicking off a lot on X these days between, for example, Pearl and Matt Walsh of the Daily Wire. But it is a larger theme. It's it's what do we do these days about the sort of breakdown in relationships? Uh, you know, there's a sort of, there's two takes. There's a kind of cynical take that says we, we just, you know, get what we can out of it, especially on the male side. And then there's this, this, then there's the idea that we should return to traditional Christian marriage. And that's the only way forward. Do you have any, any thoughts on that? I, I've not been following that spat. And so I'm not qu- quite sure how it's played out. Um, look, you know, my, I take a fairly traditional view that um, all other things being equal, um, marriage is an institution that lies at the bedrock of any flourishing society. Uh, um, that is, um, by marriage, I mean marriage in the traditional sense, one man, one woman together for life, um, uh, providing the optimal conditions for the, um, uh, for, for, uh, making babies and bringing bringing children into the world and, and rearing them well. That's not to say that um, other lifestyles should be uh, stigmatized or, or uh, repudiated, but, but that should be the, um, that should be the normative center of, of, of any flourishing society. Clearly we've got um, that there are, uh, there's, there's a war ongoing war between um between sort of men and women, mutual recrimination, mutual suspicion. Um, I think part of that is because we are living in a culture of androgyny. That is to say, a culture in which we are denying that there are any objective differences on average and for the most part between uh, men and women. Um, And that that denial um, and the ignorance that, that, that the sort of arises from it um, makes life very, very difficult um, for men and women who'd want to um, settle down and, and, and have a family and recognize that, uh, uh, that there, there's a complementarity between 
at men and women, and that needs to be navigated very, very carefully, um, preferably without government in- intervention, um, but uh, in some cases with government in- intervention. That is to say, I think that the government, um, you know, I, has a business in recognizing unions. It has uh, it has a role in the marriage business because governments should be interested in the optimal um, conditions to raise and bring up and nurture its its future citizens. Um, and uh, so I don't take the libertarian view that, that some do, that the government sh- should simply get out of the marriage business, um, business uh, altogether. Uh, but no, on the kind of the trad con and red pillars, I, 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 I don't know exactly how that's playing out. I mean, I, I can... I hear the fury, and I'm a, a little mystified by it. I, I, I don't, I don't really follow it, but it's at least evidence that that all is not well, in uh, even on the right, um, when it comes to understanding how how the sexes should get on. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's as you say, a lot of it comes from the sort of repudiation of masculinity in the culture. And until we fix that, then we're going to keep having problems. And there was a clip the other day on Politics Live with Jeff Norcott where the two female guests just completely failed to engage with the question of male suicide and and sort of deliberately diminished it and and engaged in sort of what aboutery with women's problems and it was truly bizarre it's, it's a strange culture that can't acknowledge men can't acknowledge their positives or their struggles very very odd but that seems to be where we are um i do, i do wonder as well i sometimes ask a question about the future of of britain a lot of people are very pessimistic about where we are on the whole because we you know we're in this culture war and many feel like we're not doing that well and you've got anything from cost of living housing crisis immigration obviously wokeness virtually anything you can cite the capture of our institutions i mean what is your overall take i sometimes ask it as is britain finished so i suppose that's my question um well in the past uh profits of uh britain's doom have not always come good. Um, um, Britain has tended to bury its undertakers. Um, I w- would not write us off. Um, and I think in many areas, um, British culture has shown itself to be a lot more sensible and resilient than other parts of the West. I think, for example, we're starting to see the emergence of a common sense consensus on the trans issue. Um, and, uh, you know, I think we are, um, you know, we, we recognize that, you know, men are men, women are women, and the law should uh, reflect that, except for the tiny minority who are diagnosed with uh, gender dysphoria. I can see the liberal case there behind the Gender Recognition Act 2004 is engaging in, as it, as it were, a compassionate fiction. Um, but a fiction is what it is, and um, if it's allowed to have uh, the kind of downstream policy implications in terms of the um, erasure of single-sex spaces, then that is um, that is a limit beyond which even the compassionate liberal should not be willing to go. That is not happening elsewhere, um, and uh, certainly not really happening in the United States or elsewhere in, in the Anglosphere. And I think that's that's broadly broadly positive. I also, if you look at, for example, the media landscape, I mean, I think yes, of course, there's um, you know at the moment it looks like uh, um, the mainstream media establishment are trying to 
destroy GB News and get GB News um, uh, off the air, which is, um, of course, uh, ridiculous. Uh, not least because um, you know mainstream media vehicles have been guilty of far far worse than what they accuse GB News of, of 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 having done. But I think broadly speaking, we've got a pretty um, well dispersed and balanced media landscape. There are platforms on the left, platforms on the right. Uh, you don't have anything like the kind of asymmetry that you have, for example, in the United States within the, within the mainstream media. Um, and I think, you know, broadly speaking, the views of most people are are, are represented. I mean, yes, of course, there are um, there's a, an enormous gulf in terms of voice between the somewheres and the anywheres, and um, it's you know thanks to uh, broadcasters, new new players um, like GB News that the um, that the hitherto sort of voiceless and dispossessed of being actually being able to have their views debated and uh, and expressed which is a, which is a thoroughly good thing um and and let's hope that there are there are more like it yeah i was thinking about getting onto gb news i i usually like to make a late attempt to get myself sacked at, at the end of the show i it's because uh, of course they are my main source of income so i always have to be careful but it's funny you bring it up because we've just had at time of recording a clip on Newsnight where all three guests advocated the complete closure of GB News. One of them was a Conservative MP, Caroline Noakes. Very, very strange situation. My take is that we can't play the game of the mainstream media. And Lawrence Fox did write a long, a long post to this effect. And he, I do believe he was right, I'm afraid to say. We can't play the game. The, we can't we can't buy into this cloak of respectability which they they try and hide behind but but no longer applies to them we've seen from their over and covert behavior so i would say we just have to say we understand you're just trying to shut us down and we just can't play ball with that but what we seem to do is capitulate to it we try and play by civils you know queensbury rules that, that just aren't there anymore what do you think to that yeah i think that's that's probably right i mean the double standards are there for for all to see um you know these these are um media operators who uh have uh, we we now know uh, um i'd say you know a track record of of um uh platforming some some pretty uh appalling individuals and no one quite rightly is then calling for the um investigation of those organizations as a whole um let alone their suspension. So, yeah, it's quite clear what what's happening in in the Fox scenario. It's an attempt to um, uh, uh, to, to leverage the incident uh, into in a way that helps to to shore up the um, the, the mainstream media's faltering grip on um, on the public square. And uh, let's just just hope they fail. Yeah, they asked Adam Bolton, employed for many years by Sky, what he thought of GB News and whether it should survive. I said, let's next go to Pepsi next and ask if they think Coke should be shut down. I mean, it's completely absurd. <laughs> so, yeah, we definitely agree on that. Um, finally, then, on, on, on sort of building on that, I often ask a question, how do we win the culture war? Of course, it, it implies two things. One, that there is a culture war, and two, that we're kind of on the same side. I'd hate to damn you by association, but... But that's, it's a big question, but do you have any overall take on how we win this thing? Yes, I mean, I don't really think of myself as fighting a culture war, but I, you know, I, and I'm, not, I'm wary of accepting the framing of the left on, on, on that. Um, 
we have a wonderful culture. We, uh, I'm privileged enough to be able to teach some of the great canonical figures in Western civilization from um, Plato right up to the great Cambridge philosophers of the 20th century. And I, I, I see the, the impact of teaching those figures, teaching these ideas, teaching these, these texts has on young people. We talk, touched on it briefly earlier when we talked about the, 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 the response, the uh, extraordinarily positive response to the Exodus seminars. And I think you can't, there's no really, no, not, no point fighting a culture war if you're not uh, also going to cherish the culture and make it attractive and explain uh, and convey its power as a repository for wisdom and as a way in which we can understand our place in the world and how we're connected to our past and what we can hope for in the future. Absolutely. Great answer. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks, James. Uh, Where can people find you? I now have a Twitter account um, as of, I think, February this year. So I'm at JTWOR. Uh, please follow me if, you'd, uh, if, if you're on Twitter. Um, other than that, I have a, a web page, a faculty web page, where you can um, read all the tedious details of my academic career and publications. Uh, if you're interested in coming to study at Cambridge, if you'd like to explore philosophy, religion, ethics, religion, theology, as an undergraduate, if you're a sixth former, uh, write to me and uh, I can put you in touch with the right people. Come and visit us. If you'd like to come and study on our brilliant MPhil program uh, in philosophy of religion, we run lots of other programs to get in touch. All right. Excellent. Yep. So it's at JTWORR on Twitter or X, as we now have to call it. And if you want, you want to support this podcast, of course, go to buymeacoffee.com slash Nick Dixon to help us keep the lights on. And thanks so much for doing the show, James. It was a pleasure, Nick. Thanks for having me on. Bye.